Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here. I'm also a proud member and I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker today. He's a senior fellow and director of the Education Policy Program at the Urban Institute, Dr. Matt Chingos. Uh, this is part of our Education Innovation Series sponsored by the Norton Corporation Foundation and it's also part of a, our celebration of College Now Greater Cleveland's 50th anniversary in service to the community. So last night we hosted this forum in a bar on the west side. Um, it was a panel conversation with admissions officers from Cuyahoga Community College, Case Western Reserve University, and Cleveland State University. And our moderator, uh, a, a staffer here at the City Club, she's also uh, a high school senior, Teolu Orsanya, asked them to explain why college costs so much. The answers ranged, one admissions officer explaining that the college experience itself is vastly better than it used to be, and I think that's probably true. Um, another explained the state was providing less and less support, but nevertheless, there was little indication that these trends are changing direction. In fact, for the last two decades, we've witnessed an unprecedented rise in college and university tuition rates, along with an unprecedented rise in student debt. According to a 2016 report from the New York Federal Reserve Bank, there are more than 44 million Americans with some student loan debt, one of them is standing on the stage right now, and their collective burden topped $1.3 trillion. This puts college loan debt as the second highest consumer debt category in the country, exceeding auto loans and credit card debt. It trails just behind mortgage debt. The prevailing media narrative describes the situation as a crisis for both lenders and borrowers and leaves many of us with the vision that college students graduating into a sluggish economy and being crushed by a mountain of student debt. And yet the majority of student loan borrowers, about 12.4 million students, owe just between $10,000 and $25,000. So what's the reality? What is the reality of student loan debt and how can we improve the student loan system? And perhaps the most important question, given all the debt, is it still a good investment? Our speaker today explores these questions in his, book, in his book, Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Loan Debt. It was co-written with Beth Akers, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Dr. Chingos, at the Urban, Institute of the Urban Institute's Education Policy Program, Dr. Chingos oversees policy-relevant research on issues from pre-K through post-secondary education. His current research projects examine universal pre-K programs, school choice, student transportation, school funding, college affordability, student loan debt, and personalized learning. Before joining the Urban Institute, Dr. Chingos was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He did his undergraduate work and his graduate work at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club, please welcome Dr. Matthew Chingos. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you all today about my work on, on student loans. 
So my goal of my talk today is to convince you that the student loan crisis that you read about in the newspaper uh, isn't the best way to think about the problem and obscures a lot of real problems and a lot of real harm that are being inflicted on millions of Americans through their participation in higher education and the student loan system. So, so the student loan crisis you read about in the media, I would say the poster child for that is a college graduate who went on to earn a master's degree probably in something, some field that people like to, to laugh about. They borrow tons and tons of money, right, for this degree in this, in this silly field, maybe $100,000. And they can't get a good job right away in that field. And they end up living in their parents' basement, probably in an affluent suburb of New York City. Maybe it's just because I read the New York Times, but those, those are the stories that I read. Uh, in 2014, some folks looked at 100 news articles about student loan debt, found the average debt of the people in the articles was over $85,000. So, so really, the, the media story is about people with lots of debt, no job, mom's basement, unemployed, underemployed, very high debt payments. But what does student lending in the US actually look like? For most students, debt is a tool that allows them to access educational opportunities that pay off in the long run. Overall, the balances tend to be pretty manageable. Uh, most undergraduates borrow less than $40,000, uh, the average a uh, BA graduate who does borrow, I think has something like twenty-five dollars or $30,000 when they leave college. The astronomical balances you read about in the newspaper, those tend to be folks with graduate degrees, which doesn't mean that that's always great, um, but it means you have to think about undergraduates and graduates separately when you think about this problem. You put it together, you're not going to think about it the right way. And the other key fact is that college remains a good investment on average with economic returns that are more than keeping pace with rising prices. Now, once again, on average doesn't mean for everybody, and that's a point I'll point I'll come back to. But the, but the problem is that for far too many borrowers, student loans are doing more harm than good. But, but you're not going to read about these folks uh, in the news. I, I would say the poster child for the real problems with student loans would be a single mom in her 30s who borrowed maybe $5,000 before dropping out of college, maybe a for-profit college, with no degree and limited earnings potential. Her parents don't have a basement for her to move back into. And you're probably not going to read about her in the pages of the New York Times. So what's going on? The headline fact is correct. Student loan debt has ballooned in recent years. Uh, the, total, the total outstanding debt uh, was about $300 million in 2003. And now it's something like $1.4 trillion. Why? Why has it gone up so much? It's largely the consequence of policy decisions made both in Washington and in states around the country. The first one isn't a, isn't a bad one. It's the drive to get more people to go to college and stay long enough to complete credentials. Uh, rising college attendance and degree attainment explains about 30% of the increase in borrowing since 1989. So it's important to remember that 30% could be a good thing, right? If we want more people to be homeowners and we see total mortgage debt is going up, we would say that's not bad. That's pe more people becoming homeowners. If you want more people to go to college and we see more people are borrowing to go to college, total debt's going up. That could be a good thing if people are going to, to attend colleges and get credentials that have, have value for them. So that's about 30%. But there's other public policies that have driven debt up as well. One is that borrowing for graduate students has been essentially unlimited since Congress removed caps from a program for graduate students in 2005. So now you can go to pretty much any graduate program in the country, and no questions asked. They pretty much have to give you a loan. It's not from them. It's from taxpayers for up to, to the total cost of attendance, including living expenses. So that's where a lot of those big balances come from, are people borrowing for graduate degrees, because undergraduates are much more limited by just the rules of the federal lending programs and how much they can borrow. 
student loans used to be means tested until about 1992, with a couple years exception in the late 70s. Uh, your family's ability to pay help with your education relative to the price of that education was a factor in whether you got a loan or not. Not everybody could get a loan. Starting in about 1992, 1993, the federal government said anyone in the country can get a loan. The loan program is basically an entitlement program. And that, coincidentally, if you look at when average borrowing per student really started taking off, it was, it was right about then, when borrowing went from something for basically lower and middle income folks to something that anyone could take on. And another important fact for public education, you know, where most, where most students go to get their college degrees, is that state governments have by and large decreased their support of public colleges, leading to rising tuition and debt. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I think people who are paying tuition bills think it's, think it's a bad thing. But the empirical fact is that students are now paying for the part of their education that taxpayers uh, used to cover. Um, and part of the issue here is that more folks are going to college. So even states that have not decreased the dollars they're putting into their public universities, that th those dollars on a per student basis have gone down. And in some states, the, of course, the amount has gone down as well. So, so maybe the student lending market looks okay on average for now, but is there a crisis on the horizon? Is that the, the direction we're going to? A lot of folks say this, that they think the student loan market's a lot like the housing market leading up to the 08 crash. Is, is, that what it, is that where we are now? So it's, it's important to think about what such a crisis would look like. I, and I think what it would look like is that we had lots of borrowers who are underwater on their investment, right? the way people were underwater on their homes. They owed more than it was worth. You know, in this case, in the case of education, it would be that your degree is worth less than they owe on it. So is that the case, or are we moving there? I think the evidence suggests uh, no. There's, and there's actually some evidence that the average borrower today is better off than they were a generation ago. So if you look at young households with debt in sort of nationally representative data on the financial position of American households, you'll find that the, the average uh, incomes of young households with debt have increased by about $7,000 since 1992. Their average student borrowing has gone up by $23,000. So at first that sounds bad, right? Their income's up $7,000, their debt's up $23,000. They must be worse off. But what you have to think about is that the debt's incurred once. Your average debt's up by $23,000. The increase in average earnings of $7,000, that's annual. That's something you get every year, right? So if you ask an astute investor, would you take out a $23,000 loan that makes you a profit of $7,000 every year for the rest of your life or for a very long period of time, I think most investors would take that deal. But there's also a concern that maybe borrowers are squeezed by their payments. It's, so maybe it's a good deal in the long run, but every month they just can't make, can't make the payment, right? If the going back to my investor analogy, you say, well, you can get the $23,000 loan, but you have to all pay it off this year, and they just don't have the cash flow to make it work. But that's not the case as well. Uh, the evidence suggests that the majority of households with student loans uh, pay 4% or less of their income each month towards those loans. And that number hasn't changed much since the early 90s. Um, and what we see is that as people are borrowing more, they're paying off over a longer period of time. Now, one way to think about that is the sort of the albatross of student debt around your neck, the millstone, whatever, pick your favorite metaphor, that that's you know, gotten worse, people are carrying it for longer. But the way a lot of economists would talk about it is that you want to match the life of the loan to the life of the asset. Right? When you borrow to buy a car, you don't take out a 30-year loan because a car doesn't last for 30 years. That would be crazy. When you borrow to buy a house, you do take out a 30-year mortgage, and people don't think that's crazy because a house is an investment. It's not just a place you live. It's an investment that, that works out over a long period of time for a lot of folks. And a lot of people think about education the same way, that if, if you 
do get a degree that's of value and that, that has the potential to pay off for you, that that's an investment that can pay off for over a lifetime. So it's not crazy to think about paying for it over a longer period of time. So the problem is, is not just that this broad-based student loan crisis of all debt being bad. It's not just that that doesn't exist. It's that this, what I would call a kind of over-exaggerated narrative, is overshadowing many real crises in student lending. Um, and I'll talk about uh, four or five different crises. So first, I, I think we have a completion crisis in this country. Only 58% 58 of students who start out at a four-year college earn a bachelor's degree from any institution within six years. For community colleges, the completion rate is 26%. And this completion crisis leads to a default crisis. And the issue here is that millions of borrowers are in default on their student loans. And defaulting on your loan, it hurts your credit, credit rating, which hurts your ability to borrow for other things in the future. Your ability to borrow to get a car, which you might need to get to work. Your ability to, to get a mortgage and, and, and own a home. And the number of borrowers in default goes up every year. I think it was five, almost 5 million the last time I checked, even when the default rate is falling. So even if the percentage of people defaulting on their loans each year is going down, the number of people in default keeps going up. And it's because student loan default, it's kind of like a hotel where you check in, but you, you never check out. Um, it's really hard to rehabilitate those loans. Once you, once you get there, you're sort of stuck there. It's not that there isn't a way to get out, but the set of policies to get you out are so outdated and, and Byzantine that, that people just don't get out. And there's also troublingly large uh, racial disparities um, in, in all these outcomes. Uh, a new report that, that came out uh, through Brookings a few months ago, you know, well after the book was published, uh, has a very trouble, troubling statistic, which is that black college graduates are more likely to default on their student loans than white college dropouts. Um, so it's really important, once again, to not think about the averages, to not just think about how this affects the average person, but to, to think about how, how student loans affect uh, different groups um, of, of Americans. And the key fact to keep in mind is that those who struggle to repay their debt are not, on average, those with the most debt, but those with the least debt. And the reason is that people, on average, with lots and lots of loans are doctors and lawyers. People who, yeah, they have a big balance and they have a big payment, but most, not all, but most of them have a pretty big income. People with little amounts of debt are people who didn't complete degrees, right? You usually don't borrow $2,000 to get a bachelor's degree. You borrow $2,000 because you tried to get a bachelor's degree or an associate degree or another credential, and it didn't work out. So when you have that debt, but you don't have the credential, the degree, the training that would get you the job with the income to pay off the debt, that's really when you get into trouble. And more broadly, I think this default crisis is emblematic of a broader repayment crisis. And the reason we have a repayment crisis is because borrowers don't have to default on their student loans. This isn't like a mortgage where if you can't pay your mortgage, yeah, you can call, but if they don't want to help you, you're out of luck. They take the house. We actually have federal policies in place for federal student loans, which is 90% of the market, where anyone who gets in trouble, pretty much anyone, could avoid defaulting on their, on their loan. And these programs are called income-driven repayment programs. And what it means is that if you sign up for income-driven repayment, you never pay more than an affordable percentage of your income. Um, and you take, it's called discretionary income. So you say, take, take your income, subtract 150% of the federal poverty level for, for your family, and then you pay 10 or 15% of what remains on that. So if you lose your job, you could call up your student loan servicer and reduce your payments. And if you don't have any income, well, you wouldn't make any payment. And if you didn't have any job for 20 or 25 years, the remaining balance would be, would be forgiven. Um, the problem is people are still defaulting in huge numbers even though these safety nets exist. 
And this is because I think in a lot of cases, folks don't know these programs exist or they find them too hard to understand or navigate. And if you go to the federal student loan website, you'll see there's like tons of these different programs. And you know, I'm, I study this stuff for a living and I can't keep all the details straight. There was you know, an original income-based repayment program. There was a new income-based repayment program or IBR, something called pay as you earn, P-A-Y-E or pay. Then they did repay which is revised pay as you earn. And you know, I've joked in the past, assume we're gonna have re-repay and re-re-repay, and then sometimes I give these talks and I forget which, which programs I made up as a joke and which programs really, really exist. Um, so, so if I have a hard time keeping these programs straight, you know, imagine someone at a time of great financial stress in their life, they've, they've lost their job, or they're facing mounting medical debt due to medical issues with them or a member of their family. And now you're saying at this time of great hardship, we're gonna expect you to navigate a set of rules and programs and figure out what's the best one for you and know to call your servicer. And if they screw up and you know, lose your paperwork, to call them again and send them the paperwork to verify it. And then a year later, remember to file the paperwork again because if you don't, they're gonna kick you out. I think that's, that's, that's why so many people are defaulting on their student loans even though they don't have to. And finally, I would say we have an information crisis in student lending. Um, and, and here, I think we have some pretty convincing evidence that a lot of students, they just don't know what they're getting into when they're borrowing, um, or even how much they're borrowing, or whether they're borrowing at all. A study recently came out finding that the way colleges talk about student loans on financial aid award letters, those packages, can really vary a lot. And in a lot of cases, they don't even have the word loan on it. So it just kind of shows up on something and you sign some paperwork and you have a loan, but you might not, might not even know it. And my co-author Beth Akers and I put out a study a few years ago through Brookings where we looked at national representative sample of students who we knew through the student loan data system that they all had federal student loans. But surveyors went and said, do you have a student loan? Is it a federal loan? How much do you have? And people were pretty clueless. Um, the average person couldn't tell you within 5%, 10%, $500, how much loans they had. And these were first-year college students, so they'd all taken out their first loan in the last year or so. Of the people who we knew had federal student loans from the federal data, 28% told the survey, I don't have any federal loans. 14% said, I don't have any loans at all. So how can we expect people to manage their debt if they don't even you know, understand what it, is, what it is they're getting into? And you know, is part of that you know, better educating students, providing more financial literacy? Sure, but I think part of that onus could also be on the colleges uh, to help better communicate that information that when someone's taking out a loan, it's different from a grant, right? There's part of their aid package that doesn't have to be repaid, their, their Pell Grants and their other aid. And there's a part that, that is gonna be have, to have to be repaid. And maybe to start thinking about what some of those options might be be down the road. So what should policymakers do? And being, being sort of a swamp creature type person from Washington, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on federal policy, but, but maybe we can talk about uh, state policy a little bit too in the Q&A. So I think first thing is we have to stop trying to solve the phantom overall student loan crisis, the one you read about in the newspapers I talked about earlier. And, and the reason is that the proposals to address that crisis um, are, are not gonna help the people who need it the most. So one, one popular proposal out there that politicians like to talk a lot about is something they call it refinancing. And they go on the stump and they say, you can refinance your mortgage when the rates fall down. How come you can't refinance your student loans? And the truth is, in the private market, you can refinance your student loans. If someone, if a private bank wants to give you a better deal than the federal government's taking, the same way a, you know, a mortgage company might give you a better deal on your mortgage, you can refinance them. 
But what these politicians are talking about is just reducing the interest rates on federal loans. And the truth is because federal loans have such good protections, they're actually a pretty good deal for a lot of folks. And in many cases, a bank you know, won't give them uh, a better deal. Um, and you know, banks are giving some people refinancing, but those are the kind of the best loans, the ones that are, that are most likely to be, be repaid. So if we do what these politicians want and reduce interest rates on all the student loans, it's basically going to be a, a regressive handout to the wealthiest borrowers who least need the help. It'd kind of be like if we went out and reduced everyone's mortgage interest rate by one percentage point. Would people like that? Sure, I'd like to have a lower mortgage interest rate. But the biggest benefits would be to the people with the biggest houses, the biggest mortgages. The people with the biggest mortgages aren't the people struggling the most, the people with the most money who could afford the, who could afford the biggest house. Um, and for example, we know that roughly 20%, uh, the, the richest 20% of households, the households with you know, the top fifth of the income distribution in the country, hold 44% of the student debt. So they would reap the greatest benefits of, of such a policy. And on the other hand, someone who can't afford their $50 payment, you know, that person I talked about before with just a few thousand dollars in debt and little income and no degree, taking that payment from $50 down to $48 isn't really going to help that person much at all. So that's what we should, should not do. What should we do? So right now, Congress is considering reauthorizing the Higher Education Act. It's the main federal law that governs the grant and loan programs. I think one thing we can do is just make them more simpler and easier to navigate and understand so people know what they're getting and know what they're getting into. Going from a, a, a multitude of grant programs and loan programs down to one grant program, one lo loan program, uh, I, I think could make a difference. Uh, as can making it easier to apply for aid. Right now, students have to fill out this long form called the FAFSA. It's gotten better. They've shortened the form. They've used computers to put in skip logic. They've done this thing called prior, prior year, where you don't have to wait to file your tax return. So they've, def they've definitely made it better. Um, but the government already knows how much money your family makes. So I think we could go a step further and do eligibility for, for federal grants, like the Pell Grant program, based on information the government already has. We could send people statements starting in elementary school or middle school, say, you know, your child, based on your family's income, when, they, when they're college going age, they're gonna get some support from the federal government. So by the time people are thinking about college, they already know what support is available to them, and they don't have to fill out a whole form, apply to a bunch of colleges, and then find out in a potentially confusing way from the colleges what they might be eligible for. And then on the student loan side, I think the most important thing we can do is to make dramatic changes to the repayment system, to make it income-driven in the way that it is now if you go through all the paperwork, but get rid of all the paperwork, and move to something called automatic income-driven repayment. And this is a system that is used in countries like Australia and England, um, and the way it works is that you pay, make your student loan payments the same way you make your income tax payments. And that's that your employer withholds your income taxes, right? So if you lose your job, you're not going to get a bill from the federal government for income taxes that you don't owe and have to tell them, oh, no, I lost my job. I don't have to pay it. You just stop paying. So let's say we said that folks are going to pay 5%, 10%, or maybe it's based on how much you borrowed, of their, of their income above a certain amount. Um, in England and Australia, they both put a limit. So if you make less than, say, twenty or $30,000, you don't pay anything. It happens automatically. So when you have that great period of financial stress, wherein you lost your job or you're facing you know, health issues or, or what have you, uh, you're not going to a government website and remembering to navigate five different programs and having debt collectors call you. Your payments stop because your income stopped. And I think this is a, a system that would serve our country much better now and has the potential to basically eliminate the default program, uh, problem, which is you know, causing uh, harm for, for so many Americans. And finally, I think we need better information on outcomes from different programs of study. 
to go back to my earlier point about just because something works out on average doesn't mean it works out for everybody. Uh, we need to do a better job of protecting consumers, protecting students and their families from going to institutions and to programs that aren't producing good value for them. And we need to protect the taxpayer dollars because we can't, this isn't just a, a market where we can just leave it all to the market and people will take their government funds and go anywhere and have that all work out because people aren't just spending their own money the way they are in other, other markets. They're spending taxpayers' money, right? They go to a public institution, they're spending taxpayer dollars of state and local taxpayers. They're taking a Pell Grant or a student loan, they're using federal taxpayer payer dollars. So I think if we have better information on, say, earnings from different, different uh, programs of study, and a lot of people say, well, college, it's not, it's education, it's not just about earnings, it's about so much more than that. And, and I completely agree with that. Um, but I think most people go to college expecting to not live in poverty when they get out of college. So the way I think about this is not that we should look at the, just the average earnings, say, of every program of study, and we could say, oh, duh, engineers make more than poets, um, but to know what share of people are achieving a certain standard of living or above some minimal threshold, since I think there's, there's more widespread agreement that even poets don't want to live on $10,000 a year. And if we have that information, if the federal government were to do a better job of making it available, as they've started to do through efforts like the college scorecard, then consumers could use that information, families could use that information when they're making a college-going decision and a borrowing decision, which is essentially an investment decision, to know what's going to be the likely payoff. Is this a good idea or a bad idea? And at the same time, government regulators could do, have more aggressive accountability measures to say there really are some programs or some colleges that are, that are below a bar, that are they're not a good deal for these students, they're not a good deal for taxpayers, and by letting people continue to go there, um, we're not doing anyone a service. We're basically wasting taxpayer money and we're harming the people who are taking that, the, the students who were the folks we were trying to, to help uh, in the first place. So just to, to kind of wrap up here, you know, I know nobody likes their student loans just like nobody likes uh, paying their mortgage. But the main point I've tried to make uh, in my remarks today is that we need to do a better job of differentiating good student loan debt from bad student loan debt focusing on the, the real problems, which, which are extremely concerning, and moving towards a system of student lending uh, that does less harm and more good. So I really appreciate your attention and look forward to the, to the questions. Sensible. Sensible and fact-based. How interesting. Today we're enjoying a Friday forum with Dr. Matt Chingos director of the Education Policy Program at the Urban Institute and author of Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and we welcome questions from every One City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or our webcast. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club or leave it in the comments section of, Facebook, of our Facebook Live video, and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Youth Forum Council Chair Tiolo Orsania and Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have our first question, please? On the suppliers of education, I have read, perhaps erroneously, that a major part of the uh, source of the defaults on student loans come from the for-profit industry not necessarily four-year colleges, but uh, shall I call them training institutions that are supposedly taking post-secondary education and qualifying, or they say they will qualify their students for 
jobs in the tech industry and that sort of thing. Is there any movement or would it be useful to have any uh, rules that make those schools responsible for student debt if they do not meet certain requirements, certain guidelines in securing employment for those students? That's a really great question, a really important question. You've read correctly that the for-profit colleges are responsible, or at least empirically responsible, for a disproportionate share of the student loan debt. Um, I think the question facing policymakers is whether you want to do create rules, do accountability in a way that targets those colleges in particular, or that is like more agnostic about the sector of the college, but is just focused on outcomes, which would also have the downstream effect of disproportionately affecting those colleges. I think the key challenge to doing that well is to take into account the different student bodies served by, by different kinds of colleges. So what the for-profit colleges would, would say is, yeah, our outcomes look bad, but we're serving the students who are the hardest to educate, who no one else, who no one else uh, will serve. And is there something to that? I, th I mean, I think there is. At the same time, are there some with just atrociously bad outcomes that shouldn't be in business? I mean, I think that's also the case. And the question is, how do you sort of separate uh, the two? Um, because once you start doing accountability based on outcomes, you confront that same issue in some of the public colleges um, as well. Uh, there's a lot of community colleges that don't have great outcomes. Because they are lower, lower cost or lower price, because a lot of the cost is paid by taxpayers, um, it tends not to show up as badly on the kind of loan side of the books. Um, but there would be some concerns uh, there as well. So to go to kind of your question, part of your question about should there be a rule that colleges repay some of the unpaid loans, that's something that federal policymakers are interested in right now. They often call it risk sharing. And I, I've thought about this and written a bit about this. And kind of my view is that it's a good idea in, in theory, this idea that we ought to create incentives for, for colleges to serve their students well. Uh, the, the problem is, is that it's pretty hard to do well in practice. Because if you want to tell a college, OK, we want you to do better, so we're going to create incentives for you to do better. And the incentive is going to be that if you don't do well, as measured by how your students repay their loans, then we're going to make you pay something. The problem is if we did that today, we would be punishing colleges for something they did seven years ago. So if they get really great next year, then you know, five, six, seven years after those students finish their degrees, go into the labor market, repay their loans, they would, uh, they would finally reap that benefit. So there's kind of a disconnect between action by the institutions and kind of measurement for government accountability purposes. So the way I tend to think about it is what, is what instead policymakers ought to think about is just having stricter rules for who gets kicked out of the program. Right now, you only get kicked out of the federal ability to give federal grants and loans to students if your cohort default rate is really, really high. Um, and so basically, no one ever, no one ever gets, gets kicked out. So having a more stringent standard there could make a lot of sense. And I think it's also worth thinking about how to create incentives, use federal policy to create incentives uh, for things that are much shorter term that colleges have more control over, such as whether students are showing up to class or whether they're completing uh, a semester as opposed to just disappearing partway through the semester, whether they're persisting from one semester uh, to the next, things that kind of are more, more immediate. Well, to follow up on what we were talking about before the program, did any part of your studies include the effect on immigrant students, foreign-born students? So my understanding is that in general, uh, non-citizens, you know, folks who are 
were born in another country are not eligible for the federal grant um, and loan, loan programs. I know there's debates in, in different states about eligibility of, uh, of both documented and undocumented immigrants for in-state tuition, um, but it's, uh, I think it, it's less discussed on the side of federal student loans just because uh, those programs are, are restricted to uh, citizens. You mentioned earlier that uh, African-American students usually have the highest rate in default. Um, according to uh, USA Today, uh, HBCU schools only make up 3% of all of the schools, but they only graduate, well, they graduate 20% of all of the black population. So I think if uh, a solution that we could use is push HBC schools a lot more often, or at least give them a little bit more exposures to inspire African-American students to go to those HBCUs and they have a, a higher chance of graduating. And therefore, when they graduate, they will in turn get that money back on by getting the, the job that they want, whatever the case may be. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I think HBCUs play a, play a really important role in our country's higher, sorry, HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. Uh, so, so you know, my view is that is that historically black colleges and universities play an important role in, in our nation's higher education system. Um, one one way that they come up in these discussions is, I think, in part because of the racial disparities in repayment of student loans, which I imagine trace back to things like racial disparities in wealth, which are which are very well uh, documented. Right, if on average uh, an African American family has uh, less wealth for all sorts of historical reasons, and then the child suddenly sh struggles to repay their loans, that family, once again, on average, is, can't just give the kid the money and pay it for them the way you know a, a family from, a, a white family may be able to. Um, so, so the upshot of that is that when you start looking at outcomes and start saying, well, we wanna take away these programs from colleges that have you know, bad outcomes, a lot of times you end up sweeping up both the for-profits, many of which may be legitimately bad, but also HBCUs. And then the HBCUs say, wait a minute, this, you know, uh, this isn't acceptable. Um, so I think when you're designing these programs, you do need to do it in a way that um, goes after the bad outcomes, but also separates out uh, the different student populations that are, that are being served, and just more broadly the contributions that different uh, sectors of institutions make uh, to, to our country, which you know, I completely agree for the HBCUs are, are really important. Uh, well, first of all, really appreciate the evidence-based uh, discussion today. This is terrific. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about the role that uh, college dropout plays. Because if I understood you correctly, when you're talking about bad loans, they often happen in instances of college dropout. And I'm wondering if has there been an increase in the rate of college dropouts over time, and that's contributing to this perception of the growing burden of, of, uh, of college debt problems? And if so, what's contributing to people going to college but not succeeding in dropping out? Thank you. So I do think the dropout problem is a big part of the, part of the problem here, um, because the evidence uh, suggests that the economic return to, to going to college is greatest when you get a degree. It's not, it's not that there's no return to taking some classes or getting a few years, but that the, the real bang for your buck really comes upon uh, completing the degree. Now, now my read of the evidence, at least at the four-year level, is that the among people who are enrolling, the graduation rate hasn't gotten that much worse, but more people are going to college. So if, so if more and more people are going to college, and say for the four-year degrees, half or, half, roughly half are finishing, that means that we're going to have more bachelor's degree holders over time, which is a good thing. But it means we're also going to numerically have, have more dropouts. 
So, so I think part of, part of the issue is that student loan debt just affects a lot more Americans than it used to because more people are going to college, more people are borrowing. So even the same percentages 30 years ago would just look a lot different in terms of the number of Americans affected. Um, so I, I wanted to pursue the a point you made it towards the end of your talk about getting better information about the earnings in, uh, implications of decisions that students make. One of the things that I see as an educator is that students who have college loans who are first gen are particularly likely to opt for major programs where the immediate payoff is apparent, um, even when they're not good at it. Um, which contributes to the dropout problem you're talking about, and by the same token, they avoid the majors we want to, we'd like to make fun of as you as you turn them, even though the sh you know because the short-term payoff's not there, even though the long-term payoff may actually be as great or greater than it would be for someone who chose to be a nurse, let's say. So I wonder if you have some thoughts about how those data that you'd like to see might deal with that distortion that we're seeing and what students are doing. Yeah, this is a really hard problem because the evidence we have suggests that earnings often for traditional age college students, which is important to remind folks, are not, you know, a lot of college students go in their 20s, 30s, later on going back to college. But just thinking for a second about traditional folks who go out, graduate high school, go on to college, graduate college, say somewhere between 22 and 25, depending on how long it takes them. If you look at their earnings 18 months out, that's not a very good indicator of their long run success. You kind of want to wait to maybe their early 30s for things to, to stabilize. Now, if you have a data system that looks over a long period of time, like that's not a technical challenge. Like I can go and, you know, calculate the average earnings if you give me the data. But by the time you wait for that, obviously it's less relevant because it's just older information. So that's kind of the trade-off you face, that you want to give people information that's up to date and that's reflective of the experiences of recent students in that program or that institution. Um, but you also need to, to recognize the fact that things take some time to stabilize. So I think that's an area where, where more work is needed. My colleagues and I at the Urban Institute now are doing a big project on measurement of college performance, and I think that's one of the issues we'll be thinking about. Is there some way to kind of blend different measures to, to try and get a little bit of the best of both worlds there? You've heard now muttered by our CEO the word fact-based, and you've heard by, from one of the questioners the term evidence-based, and I commend you for a presentation which is dense with empirical material and you make a real effort clearly to reason from it carefully. My question is uh, how much you find in the world that you're addressing, specifically the legislative bodies and the general public, what is the appetite that you find in your audiences for actual fact-based thinking? That's a great question. You know, I like sometimes I, I, in these talks I joke that you know at the Urban Institute we believe that facts still matter, even if that now sounds a little naive. Um, and, and you know, I'm certainly sympathetic to the view that if you kind of open the newspaper or you know turn on cable news, which I never do, so I don't know what you'd find out, but uh, but that you get a sense that facts don't matter anymore. They don't matter as much as they used to. Um, but I think there is a I mean, maybe this is just because I'm, I'm an optimist, but I think there is a bit of a gap from the kind of the public conversations, which are really polarized, especially between the political parties right now, and the more behind-the-scenes conversations that happen in places like Washington. So through my work, you know, I, I interact with, you know, staff on Capitol Hill, people who work for members of Congress uh, and for the congressional committees on, on issues 
like student loans. Um, and when you talk to, to those folks, once again, you're not having a you know, debate on, on cable news, you're just having a, a, a private conversation. You find the people, and, I, and I've done this with members of you know, staff from both political parties, I think most people just want to get it right. You know, they understand that they're trying to put some new law in place, and they want to get it right. And now facts aren't going to, and evidence isn't going to always tell you exactly what you should do, right? A lot of this is also guided by political philosophy, guided by, by values, right? So if you think about, you know, how much should state taxpayers pay, how much should their support take off of in-state tuition versus how much should students pay? Part of that's not an empirical question. It's a, just a question of philosophy, you know, who should, who should pay what? Um, but kind of the way I view my role in, the, in these debates and the way I view the role of evidence is that once you kind of have your philosophy, once you know what it is you're trying to do, facts and evidence can help you do it in the most productive way possible. So if people are out there saying, I want to help people who are struggling with their student loans, and my proposal is to reduce everyone's interest rate, well, then I can point out the facts say that you're not going to get to your goal with what you've proposed. You're going to get to some different goal. And if your goal is to give you know, the wealthiest Americans the biggest checks, well, then, then that's a fine, fine thing to do. So I think there is a role for facts. And I think there is uh, an appetite for people in, who do have positions of, of serious responsibility in these matters, even if it doesn't always seem that way on, on TV. question is, when should the conversation of student loan debt become serious? When should it first be discussed? I am a parent, and I'm also a college student myself. And I believe that discussion should happen in high school. Because I have a 21-year-old and a 16-year-old, and they want to go to college, and they want to do all these great things. And I start to talk about the costs, and I get, I'll get loans. Oh, really? You will? How? How are you going to do this? How are you going to pay it back? And they don't know. They're not educated. It's not even a, a discussion in high school about the seriousness. And if we're not educating them young, we get to these ages where we take out all of these loans. I may, as an undergrad, be able to pull out $57,000 in student loans, graduate, and make it a job at $50,000. How am I paying it back and maintaining my home? So that's my question. Do you believe that we should have these serious discussions when our youngsters are in high school? I absolutely, completely agree with you that it's important to have those discussions early. Um, I think the, the challenge is, it's, so it's thinking about this really as a serious, as you implied, a serious financial investment decision, which is what it is. It's a serious, it's a lot of money, right? Um, and the key thing is to balance between you know, I think a lot of times we talk about people taking on too much debt, but there's also the risk of taking on too little debt. If you're too what people call debt averse, you're just like some people just don't really don't like debt. They don't like like having the debt, um, and that can be a, be a good thing to be kind of be skeptical, to be to be cautious. At the same time, you don't want to uh, miss out on on educational opportunities that could be uh, a good opportunity and that could could pay off. So I think it's important to have those serious conversations, to think about debt as a, as a serious thing, absolutely, to think really hard about what the likely economic outcomes are. And those are going to be different for different kinds of programs, for different places. And we don't have all the best data, but there is some information right, that people can go out and, and, and get, a, get a look at and try and get some sense of, well, if I'm going to this place and my, my goal is to be uh, a nurse, but only 10% of people in the nursing program ever make it all the way through, 
and the other 90% end up not as nurses, but with the debt, the debt of a nurse, um, maybe I'm not gonna be the one in 10. Maybe I should think really hard, am I gonna be the, be the nine in 10? But at the same time, if there are opportunities that look like they're gonna be pretty good, if, you know, if I go to this and I do what's expected of me and I work hard, it's gonna work out. Um, but there's always some risk, right? Something could go wrong. That something could go wrong shouldn't, I think, deter people. And that's where I think it is important to be aware in advance of the fact that safety nets do exist. And yeah, are they too, you know, the income-driven repayment programs, are they too hard to navigate? Yes, they are, but, but they do exist. So um, to take, kind of to take, you, to take your example, if you, if you think I'm likely to finish and, and going to college is enabled to maybe make $50,000 a year instead of $30,000 a year, but I'm gonna leave with $50,000 in debt, to kind of think through the numbers and think what that, what that means. They, that may not be uh, a bad deal. And if you do the 10-year payment schedule for $50,000, it may suddenly look unaffordable. But if you think about the options that are available to tie your payments uh, to your income, to make payments that are lower earlier in your career when you make less money and that grow over time, um, that's uh, not uh, such a, maybe such a crazy thing uh, to do. So I think the, the problem is that we're, you know, we need young people to make decisions as savvy investors, right? Um, but not everyone learns to be a savvy investor and you know, I didn't learn how to be a savvy investor in high school, so it's no, no disrespect to, to young people um, <laughs> whatsoever. But I completely agree with your sentiment. Um, how do you feel about the idea of students getting education, uh, well, college education for free? Um, so, so the way I think about, so I'm glad you brought up free college because that's an issue that comes up a lot. You know, we talked about it a lot in the 2016 campaign. I think we've gotten a little break, but in, in 2020, um, which I'm reminded starts the day after the election this fall, so God help us all, right? Um, <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll be hearing about it uh, again. And, and the way I think about free college is it's really kind of a trade-off between simplicity and targeting. So, so the benefit of free college is that it's really clear to everyone from earlier on that you're gonna have an opportunity to go to college and it's going to be free, or at least the tuition's going to be free. Of course, most of the cost of college now are not necessarily tuition, but the cost of you know, you know, maintaining your living expenses. Right, even countries like Sweden that don't charge for college still have student loan debt because people borrow uh, for their living expenses. So, so that's one option. The other option is to, to do something that looks a little bit more like what we have now, which is a more targeted kind of policy. So the truth is that most people who go to community college now do have free college, at least on the tuition side. You know, most people at community college, the average student at community college actually gets a little money back from the federal government to help with their living expenses because the average student at a community college gets a Pell Grant, which on average is enough to, to cover their, their tuition and fees. You know, could those programs be more generous? I mean, could they reach a broader group of students? I mean, I think they, um, they could. So, so the question is, is the value of saying it's free for everybody enough uh, to make up uh, for the fact that when you make it free, you make it free for people who need it to be free and you make it free for people who who could pay. Um, my, my personal view is that you can kind of strike the right balance by having free college, but just making the, uh, the targeting part of that and just making it sort of simple but targeted. So you could say free college if your family makes less than $80,000 a year, free college if your family makes less than 50,000, you know, you pick, pick what your number is, perhaps there's some kind of sliding scale above that. So I think that, that speaks, that, that would address both the need for limited federal taxpayer dollars to be targeted to people who need it the most, but also the need 
for these programs to be a lot simpler. So you could know in a pretty straightforward way that college will be free for you or will be less expensive than that sticker price that you read about um, in the newspaper without having to fill out this crazy federal form at a point at which it may be uh, too late. So building on that question of free college, a lot of different states have made decisions to offer free community colleges. What else can states be doing to make sure college is affordable? Ohio has had a recent track record of, make, of not being very affordable to students. So what are what's our states um, doing well in that kind of part of the equation? So obviously the, the main way states uh, affect college affordability is through how they uh, how they fund colleges and how that kind of passes through uh, to the tuition that families are charged. Uh, one thing I would caution folks when you think about you know, rising college prices is true prices are, are going up. Um, there's quite a divergence between what, what people in this area call sticker price and net price. So the sticker price is it's the sticker price, um, right? It's the, kind of the list price of, I was about to use my book and compare it to the Amazon price, but they're selling them, so maybe I. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't talk about the Amazon price, but right, there's a difference between the sticker price, which is what colleges say they're charging, and at some colleges, that's what the wealthiest families pay, who don't get any aid. But more and more students, they don't pay that price. They, they get something that reflects maybe aid from the college, aid from, the, from a state grant program, aid from federal grant programs. So, one, so once again, states also face a trade-off between do I want to make the price low for everybody through significant investment, or do I want to take that same investment and do it more targeted financial aid that has more of a sliding scale where the top price paid is higher than it would be otherwise, um, but, I can, but the state can provide more generous aid. Um, the other thing I think states can do is, is encourage colleges to help students finish more quickly. We talk about four-year degree programs. I mean, four-year degree programs are a bit of a fiction. Most people take five or six years now to finish a four-year program. And that entails real costs for them and real costs for, for taxpayers at public institutions. We know where there's a, a subsidy. So I think anything we can do for people to finish a four-year degree program in closer to four years, would, it would cost the student less, they would have less debt, and it would also free up taxpayer resources that could be reinvested. Thanks a lot for your talk. It really helped me um, understand this issue much clearer. In the what I'd call sort of the, um, the critical issue of the demographic that you talked about. Uh, does it include the other dimensions of debt um, that I uh, hear about that could be credit card debt, second mortgages, uh, some of the things that are directly or indirectly connected to the college journey for those who have perhaps not the largest debt, but they didn't finish college, <clears throat> and it hits their families. Yes, yeah, so I think one thing we need to know a whole lot more about is how different kinds of debt, you know, the interplay between different kinds of debt, the way different kinds of debt um, interact um, with, each, with each other. And I'm actually working on a big project right now where we have data on a representative sample of five million American consumers and their credit data. We don't know who you are, so if you're in the data, uh, don't, uh, don't, don't worry about that. Um, and they're tracked over six years, so we're, we're going to be taking a look at sort of student loan default, what predicts loan default, how does that play out in terms of access to other kinds of debt. I'm guessing it really varies based on the borrower. You probably have groups of borrowers who maybe don't have that much experience with formal credit markets. They don't have a, any other kinds of debt, and suddenly they go to a college and they can sign a piece of paper and get a loan and, and they have debt. 
So, but there really aren't, if they default, there maybe aren't implications for getting a loan for a, a house or a car or what have you. Whereas I'm sure you have other groups of borrowers who, you know, some combination of bad decision making and bad luck uh, can, can lead to real problems for their, for their credit down the road, for the ability to get other kinds of credit. And I think the comment I made earlier about thinking about the difference between good debt and bad debt, I mean, that applies to all kinds of debt, right? If you have not a big income and you're carrying $100,000 in uh, credit card debt, that's not such a good thing, right? If you're Bill Gates and you charge $100,000 every month and you pay it off right away, well then, right, good for him, right? <laughs> um, I th so I think that's the kind of the same thing with, with other kinds of debt. And if we think of debt as always a, a bad thing, we're going to come to the wrong conclusions. And instead, it's thinking about um, what's that debt enabling you to do? You know, can, you, can you afford it? And about using debt responsibly for education, but for other things as well. Question on, uh, on bankruptcy. So you know, typically, student loans are non-dischargeable and uh, absent some form of undue hardship, which is a test that you know can be pretty difficult to to establish. Um, each year, we're hearing, at least if you're you're listening to it, the, some grumblings about potentially moving uh, the, the dischargeability of student loans back to it. Being, you're allowed to be to have those loans loans discharged. Have you done any analysis on what that may look like if if something like that may open up? So so the argument for student loans not being dischargeable is that there's no collateral, right? If someone you if you get a loan to get a car and you don't pay, they take your car, right? You get a mortgage, you don't pay, they take your house. One of the reasons that the, we have a federal student loan market, while almost the entire student loan market is run by the federal government, is because it wouldn't really exist in any reasonable form without government intervention, because in large part because there's no collateral. So I think the argument is, well, you shouldn't be able to uh, keep a, a credential that has value to you, which will continue to have value to through bankruptcy because someone will take it away. Um, at the same time, I think when you think about the 10% of the student loan market, which is private loans made by private banks, that's basically unsecured consumer credit. And it's not clear to me why that those loans should survive uh, bankruptcy when, when nothing else does. The argument would be if we went, moved to a world where those were not dischargeable, the interest rates might go up a little bit. Um, and I think there may be some evidence that that's uh, the case. But on net, I mean, I think my vote would probably be for private loans to be dischargeable in, in bankruptcy. And some people think that private banks shouldn't be able to market something as a student loan, because a student loan should really be something that has risk protections that looks more like what the federal loan uh, program uh, looks like. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a Friday forum with Dr. Matthew Chingos, Director of Education Policy Program at the Urban Institute and author of Game of Loans, The Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt. Today's forum is the Laura and Alvin A. Siegel Endowed Forum made possible by a generous grant from Mr. and Mrs. Siegel. We appreciate their longtime support of City Club programming. Today's forum is part of the Education Innovation Series, which is generously sponsored by Nordson, and our presenting sponsor for today's program is College Now Greater Cleveland, celebrating its 50th year of service to the community. We have representatives of both organizations here today, and we thank you both for your continued support of our programming. It's also part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to many of you here today for your support of City Club programming through that public grant. 
And our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at, Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. And lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Cuyahoga Community College and the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Humanities Center. We also welcome students from North Olmsted High School. Student participation in City Club forums is made possible by many foundations, including the William Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. The sale of Dr. Chingos' book, Game of Loans, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of our program. Thank you, Dr. Chingos. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.